And at this time, let's read the scripture for the sermon today. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. This was upside down. So that doesn't work when the screen's locked and the off button is there. Very good. All right. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you this first Sunday after Christmas. My name is Jay Harvey. I have the honor and distinction of being the only part-time pastor at Exilic Church, and it's one that I carry with, seriously with, uh, with uh, great joy. Um, in my role at Reformed Theological Seminary, where, where I, I am a professor and executive director, I get around to a lot of different churches, um, and uh, there's always something special that I'm reminded of uh, about this particular congregation and what the Lord is doing here. Uh, the first sermon I ever preached, actually, was, the, uh, I think in 2018, Sunday after Christmas, and it was so messed up that Pastor Gene preached on the exact same passage the next Sunday. <laughs> so I picked this passage because I thought it could also be you know, double duty for the DNA series if it doesn't go well today. Um, you know, Pastor Aaron um, said that, uh, to- told me and the community group leaders that there are two questions that we're going to enter into the new year with. And those two questions are, what is one thing you'd like to remember about 2021? And what's something you're looking forward to for 2022? Now, there's so many things that we could remember about 2021, but some things that we might like to remember, that I would like to remember, are several things came to mind. One, with regard to the church, I think it's amazing that Exilic Church added over 100 members in 2021 and one of the most difficult seasons of church life in general, and especially in New York City. And that was really exciting to behold, the way God continued to work through this particular church to bring life and hope to the communities of New York City. It was exciting to see this particular church become a, uh, an organized church, which to many of you who, who weren't there, you're like, what is that? I thought we've been doing organized things for a long time. But it's one milestone in the life of the church where the church basically assumed its own governance 
um, as, a, as a new congregation in the city. So exciting things in the life of Exilic Church. Now, in our particular family, for my wife and me, one really exciting thing that we'll remember is we celebrated our 25th anniversary, my wife Melody and I, um, in 2021, actually just a number of days ago, December 20th. And um, so we had, a, we had a great time. You know, um, I've been a little crazy on Instagram lately. It's what happens when a Gen X person discovers Instagram. You know, there's no limits. Uh, we didn't grow up with this technology. <laughs> so you can find some pictures there. Uh, we decided in, in planning for our anniversary, we have three children with us in the city, and they're all in school. And so we thought, you know, we don't want to go out of the country or anywhere really far because school in, in, in the, the New York City school system, you know, they go to school until December 24th. Um, and so we decided to stay local. And it reminded us that a friend of ours told us, who lived in New York for many years, um, be sure in New York that you do the stuff. He said, I lived in New York for like 20 years and I would have friends come and visit me and they'd done things that I had not done. <laughs> um, and so we, we, we compiled a list of things we hadn't done yet. And, uh, and uh, we had been living in Midtown for most of the time we've been in the city. And so there are things downtown that we hadn't done. So we got a hotel room and we did all the stuff that was downtown. And one of the things that we hadn't done that we wanted to do was take the tour uh, from One World Observatory, which is at One World Trade Center. And it, I commend that tour to you. Of course, like all tours, there are several levels of the tour. I mean, you can get the pass and just get in the building. As you go up the elevator, it gives you um, a historical overview as you, as you climb the building of the evolution of New York City from its founding to the present. It's really impressive. Um, we elected to get the guide, and that way I wouldn't fall asleep on the tour. And the guide took you around, and it really ends up being a tour of New York City because there's not much to see just in the building itself, right? So you walk around the observatory and you, you get a different perspective on the city, an entirely different perspective on New York City when you see it from that vantage point, a different perspective on where you live, a different perspective on the history of the city, a different perspective on the boroughs, the transit networks, even things like COVID-19, of course, the history of the city. One little thing that I enjoy learning there were so many, but one thing is, did you know what the oldest building in New York City is? It's the oldest church in New York City. I think it may be uh, the oldest standing structure that's original to itself. Um, and that's St. Paul's Chapel, which was built in 1766. Now, St. Paul's Chapel was built by Trinity Church, which is just several streets down in downtown. And it was built because at that time, um, just to walk those blocks, those several blocks, in unfinished roads was a burden for farmers. And so they built St. Paul's Chapel uh, to have greater access to the farmers who were coming from other parts of the city to worship. But when, uh, another thing um, about that church is that George Washington worshiped there uh, in the brief period of time when this was the capital of our country. So little tidbits like that, St. Paul's Church, um, and other many, uh, many, many, many other things. But, Seeing that tour, which I commend to you, or experiencing that tour, really changed our perspective. As we go into 2022, it's important that we also enter into it and allow our perspective to be impacted, allow our perspective to be brought into line. 
Because just as you can lose sight of where you are in New York City when you're in the daily grind, you know, you know your stop on the, on the subway, uh, you know your building, you know your community, you lose sight of everything happening around you very quickly. Well, the same thing can happen in life. We can get trapped in our own little worlds. We can lose sight of the big picture. And so often the tragedy is when we lose sight, we also lose hope. We lose strength. We lose joy. It's so important to have this perspective. This passage is an incredible passage because it speaks directly to us about what it is to have a perspective that's really um, open to receiving from God. And I want to look at this, how this passage gives us perspective in three ways. First of all, it gives us a perspective on ourselves. It gives us a perspective on others. And it gives us a perspective on creation. So a new perspective on self, others, and creation. Paul opens this passage and he, and he says, for the love of Christ controls us controls us. Now this word control is a really interesting word. It seems when I read this, I recall a little bit because nobody likes to be controlled. Why is this uh, translated controlled? This is a word that literally means hold together, to hold together. And it's the type of holding together that brings order to your life and allows you to move forward. Have you ever been overwhelmed at work or in, at home and you felt like everything was coming apart. You're, you use that language, everything's just coming apart, and you would long for someone or somebody to come and help hold things together. Well, that's this type of word. It means to hold together and to govern through holding together, such that on the one hand, there is a restraint, and on the other hand, there is a compulsion. And some English translations translate this. The love of Christ restrains us. Others say the love of Christ compels us and when you make a translation by committee, you get the most unattractive, the love of Christ controls us. But the idea is that the love of Christ is holding us together. Holding us together. And when it says the love of Christ, it's not your love for Christ or my love for Christ, it's Christ's love for us. This passage gives a perspective on ourselves that says that the love of Christ is so profound, so enriching, so incredible, that if you taste of it, it will control you. It will control you not in a way that people control you, to take more from you than they give, to make you less of yourself, but the love of Christ is the opposite of that. The love of Christ will fill you, give you more than you could ever give in return. Christ will. Make you more of yourself than you ever would be alone. This is the love of Christ. And Paul says that he is controlled, filled, directed by the love of Christ. But he gives a reason why. You may be sitting there saying, wait a minute. I know about Jesus, but I don't feel that. I don't experience that in my life. And I want to say here that we all have different temperaments and that's part of our journey of faith. Some of you may never feel as deeply anything that you 100% believe and cherish. 
You're just not wired to feel it the way that someone else is. And for you, the expression of this will take on a different form than those of us who may be much more emotional. But whatever your temperament is, there can be a disconnect between what we know about Jesus on the one hand and the impact of that knowledge in our lives on the other hand. For example, I could go to Columbia University or NYU and I could find scholars who would agree with me that there was an incredible teacher named Jesus who was indeed crucified. They may even go so far as to say we cannot disprove that he was raised and they would probably say that certainly the belief in the resurrection has the greatest explanatory power for the rise of the Christian faith. That's a lot of stuff to get right about Jesus. And yet those same people would have no change of life, no different point of view, no sense of experience. Why? Why? There's, two, there's one little phrase in this passage that says why. As Paul goes on to talk about this, he speaks about the death of Christ. Is it the center of understanding what it is that Jesus loves you? And then these two, these two or three words, the two or three words in verse 16, for their sake was died and raised. For their sake. For your sake. For my sake. In other words, it's not just a death of history, but it's personal. That Jesus loved you. And for your sake, he died for you. Now, I've been blessed with a beautiful wife. I correctly put up on Instagram that I celebrated my silver anniversary with the most beautiful woman in New York City. as undisputed claim. Um, and we've had a blessed marriage, for which I'm, I'm so grateful. But if we were up here, and we've been up here before talking about marriage, believe it or not, there have been disagreements in our marriage. More than just disagreements in our marriage, there have been periods of prolonged suffering and difficulty, major, major health challenges, um, major challenges of rejection, not of one another, but of others in the context of ministry at times, for doing the right things that weren't received the right way. Um, all sorts of difficulties we have faced. And over the past 25 years, I can say that when I think about um, the love of my wife for me, love of Melody for me, uh, there are many things I could say that are, that are wonderful and compelling to me, but what rises to the top would be the deep acts of sacrifice that she made at certain key times. Those really stand out. Sacrificing for me, sacrificing for our children, not just one time, but over and over again for prolonged periods of time, sacrificing to care for chronically ill family members. As an evidence of her love came this sacrifice. And when I consider that, that just melts me even more than her beauty. It melts me. And what Paul is saying here is something about the love of Christ that is the same. When you consider the death of Christ for you, if you really let it sink in, it melts you. It changes your heart. Paul says the love of Christ controls him, compels him, restrains him, guides him, governs him. What governs so many of us? Is it not so often fear 
or shame. This is something that psychologists research and you can, you can Google fear and shame and you will find a, a myriad of research and very helpful insight on the role that fear and shame play in our lives. So many of us are actually not compelled by a deep love. But so many of us are compelled by fear and by shame. And the problem with fear and shame is this. We all recognize it, but what do you do with it? I mean, the problem with fear and shame is there are some things to fear. If you were to come up to me and say, Jay, I'm afraid that I could be killed on the subway in New York City. And I were to say to you, what have you been smoking? (laughs) This could never happen to you, not in New York City. You look at me and say, what have you been smoking? Like, it could happen. Statistically, yes, we could go through it. We could say it's not likely to happen. But you see, it could happen. You could lose your job. You could lose your health. You can't just sweep fear under the rug. And if you think about shame, there are certain things that we have done that are shameful, if we're honest, and we can't just say no, deny all shame, deny all guilt, because in our conscience it keeps coming back on us that yes, it was shameful. And while we don't want to go around shaming other people, there's a sense in which we don't want to live in a society where nothing is shameless, isn't there? All sorts of instability and harm being done to one another all the time with no shame. See, the challenge with fear and shame is they're real. They exist for very real reasons. And the beauty of the gospel, the power of the gospel, one of the many powerful things about the gospel, is that Jesus Christ tells you to bring your fear and your shame to him, not to sweep it under the rug, but to resolve it. To resolve it. How through his death? And how is that? Because while, and by the way, fear and shame, by the way, they're actually good things too, aren't they? Totally fearless? Don't drive with that person. (laughs) Totally shameless? Don't date that person. All right? Fear and shame are good things. But Jesus says, through his death, for your sake, he has made you a fellow heir with him. So it's that, yes, you should fear doing stupid things when you drive that you might be killed because we need you in this life. You've got more stuff to do. So have a healthy fear. But you need not be consumed with your fear because Jesus died for you. And if it's for your sake, then he made you a fellow child of God with him. And death has no mastery over you. In fact, you can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to die is gain. For me to die is gain. And when it comes to shame, why did Jesus die on the cross? This is a really interesting question. So many people do believe that Jesus died on the cross, but if you want to have an interesting conversation with friends or neighbors, you can say, hey, why did Jesus die on the cross? It might be surprising to you, many people don't know why Jesus died on the cross. It's a great avenue into conversation. Jesus came, he said, to give his life a ransom for many. He died on the cross to bear our guilt and our shame. 
And so fear and shame, in addition to regulating society in ways that actually make it more comfortable for us to live, they can be good things, especially if you open your heart and let the Holy Spirit take your fear and your shame and lead you to Jesus for a fresh perspective on yourself. And take your fears and your shame and put them at the foot of his cross and his death. And say, Jesus, you died for my sake. Now, I need not fear because you're reconciling me to God. My guilt is taken away and my future is secure. This personal knowledge of Jesus dying for your sake and for my sake bridges the gap from this historical knowledge of Jesus, which is powerless, to this incredible relationship with Jesus, which compels us and guides us, even controls us in a beautiful, magnetic sort of way. So we need this perspective on ourselves as we head into 2020, because as we look back, I didn't tell you what I was looking forward to in 2022. I, I thought about the question, but because there were so many things about 2021 that were sobering, I can't say with a full confidence I'm looking forward to something in 2022. Like I used to say like in 2017 or 2018 or 2019, because in 2018 or 2019, I would say I'm looking forward to something that I thought I had a reasonable chance of accomplishing. But given the, the past, I'm thinking, I'm a little reticent. You know, there are things I'm anticipating, but I don't feel quite confident to say I'm looking forward to. So as we move into 2019, we need this perspective to boost our confidence that comes from this knowledge of Jesus that's personal, is dying for your sake and for mine. And related to this, we also gain a new perspective on others. Paul says, verse 16, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now what this means in short course is best ascertained up earlier in the passage. It means a lot of things in the theology of the New Testament, but there's a really short way to get into this. Right up above this text, Paul speaks about those who judge according to outward appearance rather than the heart. And that's the closest referent here to seeing someone according to the flesh. And it's very dangerous to judge someone by their outward appearance alone rather than according to the heart. I mean, think of some of the dangers that come from this wrong view of others. One is, we tend to expect way more of other people than they can deliver for us. We will set our hopes and our dreams on our spouses, on our boyfriends, on our girlfriends, our other friends. I'm not sure if we're supposed to say boy and girl like that anymore. But we, we're, we put hopes in other people that they cannot bear. Why? Because we don't know their hearts. They look strong enough, they look good enough, they look capable enough. That's dangerous. But on the other hand, we expect way too little of their potential compared to what God can do with them. This is another problem looking on the outward appearance. So someone wrongs you, and you lose all hope for that person that they could ever become a better person through Jesus Christ. You write them off the list of your potential friends in the future. You reluctantly forgive them, if at all. But because you view them according to the flesh, there is no hope for them because of what they have done to you. We all do this when we view others according to the flesh. 
Sometimes we rob people of dignity that belongs to them because we don't see them as created in the image of God with a heart made for God. And we see them only according to their station in life or their race or their class. Viewing people according to the flesh. And we fail to see people as having an eternal destiny. Only seeing according to the flesh, the material composition that makes up their bodies. All of these things are dangerous when it comes to seeing someone according to the flesh. But Paul says no more. We don't view anyone according to the flesh. You know, I don't know in terms of relationships that you've experienced in 2021 as you move forward to 2022. But it's very important that you take a super realistic view of the people in your life and particularly of the people that have harmed you. Not at all to diminish the wounds that you received. God doesn't diminish those wounds. God holds them more precious than even you, if you can believe it. And he's proven that by giving his son to die for you. But that you might see them as a human being rather than a savior. That you might see them as a sinful person in need of salvation rather than simply a person that failed you. That you might come to a place of being able to forgive what even seems unforgivable. Not because it was less evil than it was, but because by withholding that forgiveness, you bind yourself to that pain in a powerful and lasting way. We have to have a right view of others along with a right view of Christ so that we are able to move forward in the future and not held captive by the past, especially the wounds of the past. And last, as we look at this particular text, I think there's a different perspective we see on creation. There's this wonderful verse of scripture that has gotten much warranted commentary. Where Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. Now your, your translation will say he is or she is a new creation. But the Greek text doesn't have that he and your pronouns there, it says, literally, if anyone in Christ, new creation. And when that, that, that's not there for a reason. Because what the, what the Greek text is emphasizing by not having any pronouns there is that something much more powerful than we imagined happened with Jesus' death and resurrection. If you've grown up in a Christian church, you've been told that Jesus' resurrection had the significance that I just explained to you which it definitely does. But all that Jesus has done for you personally by dying on the cross is part of even a greater work, part of a great, it's, it's part of a, of a holistic work where Jesus' death and resurrection is the first installment of a whole new creation. And what Paul is saying here is that if you're in Christ, yes, your fear is removed. Yes, your shame, your guilt are removed. And also, you have, a new, you have one foot planted in the new creation. You're literally a new person. 
As we move into 2022, that means that when you understand that Jesus has died for your sake and you embrace that, you live as an agent of his of the new creation, a child of God, a brother or sister of Jesus himself. And when you step out into your work in 2022, this is such profound significance for us all. Because we're there, not just as consumers, not just as collaborators, which it's appropriate to consume and it's appropriate to collaborate, but we're there with this higher order mission, literally part of the new creation work of God, part of this first installment of the work of Jesus Christ that will be brought to a great consummation in the end. And we're there to bear witness to it, not in perhaps traditional ways of saying, look, there's Jesus, but it's broader than that. Three ways that you're bearing witness to the new creation, and they all relate to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus came as a prophet to tell the truth of God, and you have words of truth to speak about all sorts of things in your callings, in your work. Jesus came as a high priest to reconcile us to God, and you were called to make peace, to make peace among coworkers, to make peace among friends. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And Jesus now reigns over all things, and you are an heir with him, and you are called to do tasks to do tasks that are part of God accomplishing a work through the company that you work with that is providing for the communities of New York City. The work that you do is intrinsically valuable. It is part of God's blessing on this city. And you step into the new creation and you do it with that knowledge. I'm called to do these tasks as part of this kingly work, whatever it is. There's so much for us as we live in the new creation, as part of the first down payment of the new creation and fellowship with Jesus. And then lastly, confidence for the future. I mentioned, you know, bad things will happen. Difficult things will happen. We, we know this, but we have this confidence too. So our perspective on the future is how I close with is a perspective of confidence. I mentioned that little chapel, the church, St. Paul's Chapel, built in 1766 as a church for farmers. Incredibly, the original structure still stands. It's in very close proximity to the World Trade Center, and it miraculously withstood no damage in the bombing, such that it became nicknamed as the little chapel that stood and it became a staging ground for the relief effort at 9-11. And the tour guide, this is his words, not mine, said it became the spiritual center of the relief work and recovery work at 9-11. This church that was built in 1766, more than 200, more than 300 years later, 350 years later, becomes instrumental in the relief work at 9-11. That's a Christian doctrine called the providence of God. All things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
whether you've been blessed beyond imagination in 2021 or where you had the worst year of your life, whatever it is, you can know that in Christ, moving into 2022, he has a plan to work it for your good and his glory. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this great salvation in Jesus. And I just pray for everyone gathered here this morning. There are some here who um, are, are wrestling with uh, deep pain, deep loss. Um, I pray that you especially meet them. There are others here, Lord, who are wondering where to go with great blessing. Meet them as well. Lord, meet us all because you are a good father to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.